Justice is the right thing to do for all parties considering the circumstances. That's justice. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I'm Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, good morning, or actually, I guess we're in the afternoon now. Yeah, How it's, do- uh, I'm doing great. I'm How doing, doing great. Doing wonderful, and I'm very excited about our guest, Dennis Cathy, uh, today. As I, you know, uh, the other day, I ended up with my picture on the front page of the Fulton Daily Report. And, uh, uh, you know, I was glad it was for something maybe good instead of bad. But the real honor was I got compared to Dennis Cathy in that. And Dennis's picture was there with me. And I told somebody that's that's one of the highlights of my legal career for anybody to mention me in the same breath as Dennis Cathy, because uh, he is a longtime friend and really and truly one of the uh, greatest lawyers in this state. Really? The pleasure was mine. I felt the same <laughs> way. <laughs> well, those were some some both good looking mugs on the on the top of the above the fold in the daily report the other day. I saw that. Um, and I'm I'm also excited about having Dennis. I'm I'll do his introduction here in a second, but uh I got to know Dennis um really through working with Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. And one of the things I, I always talk about why it's important to be a member of GTLA and similar bar bar associations is, you know, I'm not sure Dennis and I would ever have become friends but for GTLA and both his work in GTLA and at, down at the Capitol uh, and my work with GTLA and at the Capitol because he's a plaintiff's attorney up in um, Cornelia, Habersham County. I was trying to remember the county, Habersham County, and I'm down here in Atlanta and I don't know that our our paths would have crossed. So I'm very lucky to well, not only meet him, but become a friend of his. That's that's one of the things I love about uh, Dennis is that uh, he and I are both uh, country lawyers. That's a kinship that we kind of share. We don't practice uh, down inside the perimeter. Uh, and uh, as I, uh, as I, uh, my friend Dennis's friend, now deceased Bobby Lee Cook, used to say, we read the same books they read in New York. We, we, you know, we have the same kind of cases. We do everything. We just do it in a little more uh, rural setting. And uh, I I just can't tell you how long I've been an admirer, Dennis, uh, for, not only for his accomplishment, which would be, and you're going to tell us about, great at any setting, but particularly, you know, to be in, in Cordelia, Georgia, doing that. Yeah, let me let me uh, introduce Dennis to our listeners and 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 first give our listeners an idea of and this is a a tiny uh, bio for an incredible career uh, that he's had. But Dennis Kathy, Dennis T. Kathy, is a graduate of the University of Georgia undergraduate and law school. 
He obtained his undergraduate degree in 1967 and his Juris Doctor in 1970. Mr. Cathy was born in Rabin County, Georgia, and has served on the Board of Governors of the State Bar of Georgia as President of the Mountain Circuit Bar Association, is a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABODA, has served on the investigative panel of the State Bar of Georgia Disciplinary Committee, has been a member of the Federal Bar Council for the Northern District of Georgia, and is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. He is a past recipient of the State Bar of Georgia Traditions of Excellence Award and a past president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association. He has also served on the Governor's Judicial Nominating Committee and has just finished a six-year stint on the Board of Bar Examiners. Mr. Cathy was an officer in the United States Army Medical Service Corps and has served as youth sports coach for the Habersham County Parks and Rec Department, is active in the Cornelia United Methodist Church, and serves on the Board of Trustees of Piedmont College. Wow. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be with you. And uh, Lester, when you called invited me to this, I thought how wonderful it'd be to be with my two great friends. Now, I, I think probably you just decided, let's talk to the oldest lawyer we know is how I got uh, on this. If you'll notice that bio, uh, in December of uh, 22, I became, that was my 52nd year of being a member of the state bar. Uh, and I don't see many of my peers who've been around that long still doing uh, the stuff I do. But I love it. I love the law. I love the people I meet. I love my people that I work with. Uh, and uh, it's uh, why would you quit that? Why would you quit? Why would you retire something you love? So I've been at it a long time and I appreciate your kind introduction. And that handsome dog, uh, Lester Tate, did show me up on the cover of the book daily. But I'm, I'm, I'm accustomed to being second place. So. Well, well we, we've had Buddy Darden on, so I think I think he maybe caps you by a year or so, doesn't it? That's true. Buddy probably has a little is a little ahead of me. Well, fifty fifty two years, uh, you must like it, and it must have suited you pretty well, wouldn't you say? The practice of law. Well, you could do it in you know it was it was not outside. You could do it in in the air conditioning, <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of heavy lifting. So yeah, it served me well. Don't have to dig many ditches. No, there's not many ditches. So it's it's been a, a, a wonderful, wonderful trip. And the trip well, isn't it, over, hopefully. But uh, no, 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 of course not. Um, and and it wasn't that we picked the oldest lawyer. Truthfully, when I suggested that we have you on to Lester, it was because of that that article in the Daily Report and seeing your picture, and uh, that has to do with we'll, we'll probably talk about this about your representation of judges before the JQC, the Judicial Qualifications Committee. And I want you to know, uh, I think you're going to become a YouTube star um, because these JQC hearings are broadcast on YouTube. So I can sit here and work at my office at my desk, Dennis, on one one monitor and have you, your bright and shiny face on the other, given the JQC hell. I think you and I should just have this Zoom connection every day so we can <laughs> this way. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about that. We could even include Lester with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, the funny thing about that article was Dennis and I, you know, they're asking us about representing judges, and we both, we weren't interviewed together. No, we had no idea we were going, what the other one was going to say. 
But we both said there's really no scoundrels we won't represent if we'll represent judges, right, uh, Dennis? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no bar too low for us. That's right. Well, let's talk a little bit first, Dennis, before we get into some some specific areas of the law that you've you've done in your career. But tell us a little bit about first why you became a lawyer. Um, we know you were you're born and raised up in North Georgia, but tell us a little bit that about what influenced you to become a lawyer. Well, uh, Robin, uh, you probably wouldn't have any trouble believing this. I didn't know a lawyer. We had maybe one or two in the county, but I didn't know them. I didn't. I didn't know anything about the law, but I was a uh, I was a reader of current events and politics, and you know you couldn't read about what was going on in the world without being aware that the law was so instrumental in it. And like any kid my age in the '60s, I read To Kill a Mockingbird. It has tremendous influence on me. I think I don't think as a lawyer my age that wouldn't say that. But I was also intrigued. My dear late father, we would watch those Perry Mason shows together on that 17-inch black and white TV <laughs> and some of the great memories of my life. And then I got a little older. I got really intrigued with the Nuremberg trials. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Lester will, will, will appreciate this. I've used uh, some of Justice Jackson's comments. Justice Robert Jackson was a Supreme Court justice. And he prosecuted at the Nuremberg trials. I sent him over to do prosecution. But in 1940, when he was attorney general of the United States, he made a speech about prosecutors and, uh, and how, you know, a prosecutor ought to do justice instead of trying to get the man he wanted to get. And I've used some of Justice Jackson's quotes, but those are the things just, and, and I, I, uh, uh, I was always appearing in whatever we had where somebody got up and spoke. So, uh, you know, when you speak in public, people talk about you being a politician. Uh, God forbid I, I avoided that. So I've never been interested in politics, but I did uh, not as a participant. I'm a, a political groupie, so to speak. I follow it. But uh, so it was. Uh, and And so a little known fact, I was actually. Uh, Accepted to Georgia Tech on the co-op plan and have my room reserved. And in the late of, of my senior year, I decided to go to Georgia and be a lawyer. And uh, so it, it was that it was my senior year I made that decision, and I never looked back. You, I you know, Dennis, I, I I was accepted to the co-op program at Georgia Tech. Got kicked out of the co-op program because I flunked chemistry. Uh, still, now I know why you went to law school. You fought chemistry. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. You know, decided to go to law school. So uh, that's the thing. And, and when you're talking about Justice Jackson, one of the other things great that I love is you, you've read his Ode to the Country Lawyer. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, when he talks about in the last duty of the country lawyers to go drinking with his client once as he lost and cuss the judge, you know, it's, it's a... <laughs> Dennis never does that. No, no. <laughs> uh, a complete abstainer. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your practice um, and take us from how you started out. Were you doing a little bit of anything or uh, everything I, that walked through I the start, door? Or? I started out as, as a country lawyer, and I'll bet you there's a guy sitting with us right now that don't know what I'm talking about. I wanted to get in the courtroom, so anything that came in the door, I would do that got me to try a case. 
I've tried landline cases, property damage cases, uh, divorce cases to a jury, uh, about anything criminal. I've tried a lot of criminal cases because you could go to the courthouse in, in Mount Circuit, which was then five counties, and they would just appoint you in the courtroom to represent somebody. It's, it, Dennis, you represent this guy. And uh, we didn't have a, a viable PD system then. I don't guess anybody did. So I tried a lot of criminal cases. And then I got uh, my, my favorite thing to do was uh, was uh, contingent fee lawsuits, torts. Honest to Pete, one of the most appealing parts about it is I had a heck of a time feeing people. I had a hard time telling people I'll. I'll, uh, you know, you, I'll represent you for five hundred dollars. Here's poor people that, you know, sometimes all they have to do is have common sense, and I'm supposed to charge them five hundred dollars. I had a real hard time charging people cash money for fees. So when I got those contingent fees, my it's just commission sales. I was part of the action, so it was comfortable. Plus, it was really a way you could help people that were hurt, had loved, lost loved ones. And when I started doing the tort business. The first thing I started doing is eliminating other things I did. I eliminated domestic work. I eliminated criminal. And finally, I got down to, can you in a small town, 3,500 people, earn a living just doing plans work? And I'm, I'm Ed Strain, my late partner, and I made that decision to do exactly that. And uh, it boiled down to, to that's all we did. But it evolved. And all those things, and Lester Tate will tell you this, and you do too. I don't know if you ever did the kind of country lawyer business, but every tr case I ever tried, no matter what the field was, helped me. It, it educated me and helped me understand the, the law. Uh, you try a landline dispute and there's 12 people in the box. You, you, get, you get some feeling about the community and what's going on. So any case I tried, I thought helped me down the long run. Yeah, I think I think one of those things, you know, like Dennis, you're talking about it. And I've, I've done that. You know, you sit in the jury box and the judge said, Mr. Tate, you represent this person, you know, whatever. Yeah. And and I, you know, and Robin and I both were, you know, very supportive of having a professional, professionally dedicated public defender service. And I know you were. But I, I, I swear, I think for lawyers, young lawyers getting experience, the idea that you could go over there because. You know, I probably never had public defender stuff be more than 15, 20 percent of my practice at any given time, you know, if it was that high. But you got to go get those cases. And I I'm, I'm wonder if you feel the same, yeah. you know, but you don't you don't have to dedicate your whole practice to do it. and You're able to develop other stuff like you did. No. And uh, what I did with those uh, with those uh, appointed cases, I tried to do them just like I would do any other case. A lot of lawyers kind of. Well, I got to do this, but uh, we had a famous, back in this day, a famous lawyer in the Mountain Circuit named Erwin Kimsey. And I gave a talk to a historical group the other uh, a year or so ago and talking about history of North Georgia legal people. Erwin was a World War II hero. He, had a, he once captured a colonel when they were driving across the Rhine River. A general, he captured a general, they put it in the paper. He came back and he practiced law. He actually ran for attorney general in Georgia after the war. He got beat, but uh, but uh, Irwin would ride the circuit, and uh, they appointed him to court one time, and said, "Mr. Irwin, 
I want you to represent this fellow over here. And he got to the table and said, judge, put the first 12 in the box. We're ready to go. <laughs> now, so the poor guy at his table, just he doesn't know what's going on. And he said, Mr. Kimsey, let me know. Let me tell you what happened. He said, be quiet, son. The prosecutor's fixing to do it. He's making his opening statement. <laughs> so, now, I don't know if any of those tr- stories were true. It may be apocryphal, but uh, we have a long tradition up here of, of people in the country representing uh, uh, indigent people kind of w- with some enthusiasm. So yeah. I asserted that. Well, I, I've never in my career, I've, I've never really included any criminal uh, law. I did almost get appointed once sitting in a superior courtroom in Hall County. Thank God I was able to duck down <laughs> under the pew. Yeah, far well, enough, you but better the, watch coming in North said, Georgia. We'll get you. Yeah, the, the judge said, uh, well, there's Miss Clark. She's a good lawyer. I could appoint her. I'm like, oh, my God, let me out of here. Um, but I did try. Uh, a friend of mine needed a little help on a murder trial. And I asked, can I help you? Let me just go be second chair. And we tried a murder trial a couple of years ago just so I could um, say that I've gone through that. And I've sat next to a client who faced life in prison. Uh, and, you know, I did everything I could do. I did voir dire and all the motions and everything like that. And I really do feel like I helped, even though he was ultimately convicted. And it, 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 it gives you a good appreciation for those people that do it as a steady diet, I'm sure. Absolutely. It absolutely does. And like you say, I learned a lot from that experience. So I think it's important to get a little variety. And the other thing I was going to say is how you you got rid of some of the other types of law you did as you started specializing in in, um, plaintiff's personal injury. And I think Lester would probably agree divorce and domestic was one of the first ones he booted out of his practice, too. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Dennis, I think. I think, too, you know, I think back about, you know, I represented the power company for a good portion of my career. That's really the the only major defense work I ever did. But I represented the power company. And, you know, they got I remember I tried a case in federal court. They got sued for six million dollars. And I'd like like with your indigent clients, I, I always wanted to win. I always wanted to put, you know, everything I could in it. But, you know, uh, I knew and I won the case, but I knew the power company could afford it. And I was going to get paid either way. And, you know, then you do some plaintiff's work and you you kind of got a little skin in the game. You know, you got that, you, you know, uh, you got $55 in cost in it <laughs> Maybe when you started out. But now it's 55000 or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, boy, then when the jury goes out, you get a little more tighter in your stomach. But, boy, you sit there with somebody that's going off to the penitentiary. If you lose, that just always, you know, it's knotted my stomach up. It's, it's a tough it's tough. Uh, it really is. Uh, but uh, the uh, the tort work uh, was pretty fulfilling, actually, some of the cases uh, that we did. And Lester, you know this, used to try wrongful death case and you go to court with one expando file. Yep. And now you bring your wagon in with 26 boxes, uh, bankers boxes. And that's, that's one thing that's expanded. But I look back on the changes of um, um, the um, the cyber world, the, the internet, the digital world's changed everything. And one of the benefits of COVID, if there are any, uh, is now a remote depositions and remote mediations are routine, and we'll never go back. We'll, that that's going to stay with us because it's a great saving of money and a great uh, gives you more scheduling flexibility. 
uh, I took that deposition in Tucson the other day by sitting in my in my <laughs> library like you are right now. And that would have been a two day event for me. And several thousand dollars. And several thousand dollars. So, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it used to be at nine o'clock. I got my mail. And the last, the last time I heard from a lawyer that day, unless he called me on my telephone and not the cell phone either, the landline. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's, you get emails at 2 a.m. about your case. So things have changed. Oh, things have changed. Talking about that <clears throat> and going through COVID, in your 52 career, are you 52 year career? Are you trying more cases, or do you think cases are not? We don't have as many trials as we used to. What have, What's your observation? We have nowhere near the trials we used to have. Uh, you agree, Lester? Yeah, I, I do, and I think part of it is people sort of over prepare for them. You know, they 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 look at it as this daunting task instead of where right. where's the file and where's the courthouse? Right, they they do. <laughs> they, everybody's taking it to a tremendous level. Is that because we got so many lawyers now that they fill up their uh, that they fill up their day uh, involvement? Uh, uh, is it because life is more complex? And uh, uh, somebody has theorized to me it's because the gym, jury demographics are now exponentially wider. You used to have the the, the twelve white males uh, on your jury, and uh, and finally we had enough women to to even it out and. Uh, I don't know what the reason is. Uh, small cases that you and I paid our light bill with the the fifteen to twenty five thousand dollar tort. You you, did, you you would just go to the courthouse and try that case. Now it's uh, ten depositions, and you 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 almost have to try it to get your client any money at the cost. I don't know what the real reason is, um, uh, but it it is a, a fact of life that we try fewer cases. Do you think on the on the tort end that uh, that uh, the 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 big advertisers, you know, I mean, there are, you know, there's, you know, it's a valid theory, I guess, that if you advertise all the time, you know, a million one dollar cases will make you as big a fee as one million dollar case. And uh, but they they have to turn them over because they got to pay the next month's TV bill. uh, billboard bill, you know, whatever else. And I mean, to me, that's gotten the value of some of those cases down because the the the, the jury is never getting to put a price, you know, put a price tag on them. Do you think that's effective? I, I think that's a, a very valid point. I had somebody call me within the past week and they went to a, an advertising law firm. And I'm not critical of that as such. But that it was against a, a major retailer, and they wrote the major retailer, and the retailer wrote them back and said, we've, we've looked at things, and we're not liable. And so they said, well, they've turned us down, so here's your file. You go find somebody else. That's all it took. Good Lord. Turned the case down. And, uh, it, you know, the injuries were not great. The injuries were, were in any slip and fall case in a retailer's got defenses. But I thought it was kind of funny that that was, that was the, that's what they with the reason for turning it down. Um, I was on the board of governors when the Supreme Court ruled that advertising was was uh, permissible. And uh, a lot of the older lawyers who were probably younger than me, I am now, but old to me, but said, oh, nobody's going to advertise. They legally can do it, but nobody's going to do it. I said, watch. And, and then it became, uh, and the theory of the Supreme Court was it's a consumer right to hear from people about what 
you can advertise your service. And the bar has struggled with exactly how to manage it. And the newest thing is to keep you from putting on the billboard. I made a billion dollars in settlement, but I don't, I don't know how that's ever going to be managed. But uh, and some of the some of the people that are advertising lawyers are extremely good, extremely good lawyers. And uh, but how do you see it, Lester? You're you're probably more involved in the uh, administration of the law and the bar. How do you see advertising? Where do you, where is it going? Uh, well, I don't. I think it's. I don't think anything's going to change on it a whole lot. Uh, you know, and the thing I see a lot just in my practice. You know, I. I, I, I've never managed to quit the criminal law habit, you know, uh, like you did, uh, uh, Dennis. I did, I did, I did decide I, it was time for me to go straight on politics, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, turn my life around. But uh, with the criminal stuff, what's funny to me is, you know, people have, you know, uh, they'll come to my office sometimes and they'll say, "Uncle Joe is in jail," and we need to get him out, you know, Friday afternoon. It's Friday afternoon. Can you get him out and all this? And I just, uh, you, you know, I need to get him out. And, you know, I didn't know who to call. I know Ken Nugent, who's handling my grandmama's wrongful death case, ain't going to be able to get him out. And and I'm not blasting Ken here. I'm just saying that what we used to do is we would uh, take care. You know, you were a one-stop shop. Yeah. for everybody's legal needs in town. And you got the $5,000 chiropractic rear ender case against State Farm or Allstate. Um, and you got the big cases, you know, too. And, uh, you know, I, it's made me less uh, desirable to uh, to want to wade into some of those uh, criminal cases that I might even done, particularly getting a bond set or whatever, you know, pro bono, because, you know, they're not bringing me their other cases. Well, I have a, a wonderful situation here. I've got a couple of really good friends who I can call uh, and, and send somebody to. And, and they, they're dedicated criminal lawyers and do it for the right reason and, and do a lot of pro bono work. And uh, I can call them and say, I need, I need you to do something for a client. And they will do it. And it's, a, it's the way the bar should. That's what you should do. You should help your friend who who yep. needs something, and, and I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very blessed to have that. But um, um, you, uh, you said you're cured of a political disease. You, you know, I, I think Robin Clark's husband, Bill, might have been the man that told me that there's only one cure for the political bug, and that's embalming flu. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 so I'm glad actually, you avoided that. You got out of it without the embalming flu. I actually got that line from uh, from uh, the late, great Harold Murphy. Yeah. You know, he said he spent 10 years in the legislature as a politician, and he decided to go straight you know, <laughs> so, when he got out. Uh, but uh, I, I want to hear from you too about uh, and I, and I always I always get off Robin's outline one way or another, but I'm trying to stick to it, you know, okay. today. But uh, you know, you what year were you president of GTLA? Oh five, oh five, and you know you, but you were in GTLA when it really kind of got started. I, it was. Uh, I think I I may have even I don't think I was but I may have even been a member when it was GATA. Do y'all remember that? <laughs> no, <Yes>. I don't. <laughs> and, and, I know uh, it was called that before. It was, and uh, 
you could you could meet in a phone booth back then, and uh, you know it was. Uh, uh, I was practicing law when the first million dollar verdict occurred in Georgia, and a lot of people don't remember that. Of of all the obscure places for that verdict to have occurred, it was in Gainesville Federal Court, and uh, Baxter Finch got the verdict. And what I did when I heard that, I went down and got an appointment to talk to Judge O'Kelly's courtroom clerk and say, how did they do that? I didn't go to anybody else. I went to the, to the officer in the court and said, Jerry Evans, and I knew Jerry pretty well. I said, how, what happened? And uh, it, was a, it was a neat thing. But um, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the numbers are so radically different now, the, the numbers for cases. And uh, uh, talk to any mediator, and they'll tell you this. The starting points have about double from five years ago on both sides. And uh, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's inflation. It's it's publicity about big numbers. I, I don't know what that is. Well, your your work as um, GTLA president president so in 2006 that was the year after we had the major tort reform i was bill. there i was the herbert hoover i was there for the uh, depression of the 05 <laughs> tort reform and uh, uh we all saw it coming uh and we worked hard and one of the neatest things we did is after in the aftermath and bill was instrumental in this we had people challenge those those tort reform as many of us could be challenged in court uh, we had that done and had some degree of success, as you remember. Uh, and uh, every year we hold our breath uh, as, as, it, as it comes along. And uh, it was a it was a grueling experience, and it was uh, that there was no debate. There people were ingrained in their position. It was very hard to talk substantive, uh, uh, real earth. What happens out there? Uh, they had a bumper sticker. You know, verdicts are going crazy. You had to have a, a meaningful conversation for our side to be heard. And it was it, it, it didn't lend itself well. And we had some wonderful people working and helping and and and, and helping us. Um, and uh, we owe we owe some instrumental politicians a lot. Could have been a lot worse. Well, there was there was a time when. Uh... Uh, and, and and this was before my time, but when uh, uh, our our deceased uh, friend Jimmy Parker uh, was president of Georgia trial lawyers and a member of the Georgia Senate, you know, and now uh, we can't even hardly it's hard enough to keep lawyers in the legislature, much less lawyers that are in bar leadership, right? You know, positions whether it be for the mandatory bar or the organized bar. You know, I've got. Great anecdotes about a lot of those kind of leaders. One of the best ones I've heard about Jimmy Parker is, you know, Lester, when we, you and I first started doing this, subrogation, we didn't have to worry about subrogation in any of our cases. You got your case settled. The insurance people wouldn't come after their money. But way back, uh, uh, there was a subrogation in workers' comp. And Jack Gunter, who has became Superior Court Judge here, but served in the legislature with Jimmy, said that Jimmy, toward the end of the legislature, walked down one time and said, 
Uh, this is just a little old bill here to do away with subrogation in worker compensation cases. It got it passed, and the <laughs> subro was gone in workers' comp cases for years based on Jimmy just going down there and ha handling it like that. Uh, Jack always thought that was a, a, a really neat way Jimmy did it. He was quite a guy. And, and, and for our listeners who don't know what subrogation is, it means you get hurt in an accident and you have a lawsuit, you know, to try to recoup your lost wages, medical bills, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you get it settled or you get a verdict. And then the insurance company is coming back to you saying, we want some of the money you yep. got. You know, I have clients. We want our money back. We paid for your medical bill. That's right. That's right. And that used to not be a, a, a foot, but it is a, you have two cases now. You win your case and then you try to keep the client his money. That's yep. Right. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. But um, going back, are you? Would you say you're a political junkie, Dennis? Because I know when you were when you were president of GTLA, I'm sure you spent a ton of time down at the at the state capitol. I did. I spent a lot of time down there. And uh, uh, I, the great my great mentor was Bill Clark, and uh, <laughs> Bill, Bill knew everybody. Everybody liked Bill. He was uh, very effective for our organization. And you might want to tell people who that who I'm talking about. That's my husband, and he was the lobbyist for Georgia Trial Lawyers for for a long time. And uh, was really, really savvy. Uh, Bill was just a savvy guy, kept his thumb on the... And he he really was really liked by both parties. And uh, that's becoming rarer, too, that, that you can cross the aisle. Uh, that's one of the sad things that we see now. Um, but Bill, Bill was, was terrific. Well, um, we've talked a little bit about how your career has changed. I'm, I'm wondering, um, do you have a highlight of your career you could share with our listeners or, or well, something that you, you like it? You, you would really like someone to know about this case or. Well, I, I have many. Uh, and uh, when you've been at it as long as I have and, one of the cases that just, one of my staff mentioned to me today, and you put something in it about the child, the uh, uh, the amusement park act that was passed. Yeah. Result of one yes. Of the the Carnival Ride Safety Act that right. was passed by the Georgia legislature. Tell we us about that. Girl, we had a little girl who, and this is one of one of the reasons I wanted to mention it is because that case was instrumental in David Sleppy coming with my firm. David was practicing in Atlanta and had this case where a little girl got on something called a break dance ride down at the amusement park that's always down around Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. It's still there. And uh, they, she was too small for the ride, and they put her on it. She got grievously injured. And Dave had the case, and of course, it's a traveling carnival. And so he, they're about to leave town. And Dave goes to Judge Joel Fryer and gets a temporary restraining order that they can't move that thing out of town until he can get it inspected. And David already done that when he came to me. And uh, the family was very engaged. Her name was Laquanda Hughes, a delightful little girl who suffered terribly, got mashed and pressed with some of the things on that ride. Now, interesting aside to that, I go up, she gets transferred up to Vandy, and I go up and take the deposition of her treating physician who's a lung transplant doctor. And it was Dr. Bill Prist who became senator from Tennessee. 
And uh, he was really uh, cooperative and really been over backwards. And I, I said, uh, Doctor, you're, you're taking all the time in the world. He said, well, I'm waiting on a heart to get here. I've got to put it in. So I don't have anything to do but talk to you till it comes. And uh, and that was a, a, a wonderful recovery with a terrible tragedy. And Laquanda lost her life after really fighting through the transplant and everything. And her family got engaged. And, and we we had sued. We started by suing the, the ride people. What they had done, German manufacturer, and they didn't have uh, they didn't have the height restriction. They their restriction was by age. It didn't matter what size you were. And even with that, they didn't put it on the ride. It didn't get put up. It wasn't on there. So we sued them, and we sued the state of Georgia who had inspected the darn thing. And then we in discovery we find out that their insurer. Their liability insurer had been out there inspecting that ride and gave it a clean bill of health. So we added them to the case. So, and I think we ended up getting something out of everybody. Uh, and, but like all your cases, no high fives, no fist pump because yeah, money, but we still had the loss, terrible, uh, unimaginable loss. And so it's hard to, to, to be, we did get them some money. They had several other children with big help to the other kids, but. But the loss was profound. But Dave did a magnificent job on that, and and we got an act passed, and um, um, I met Frist, and it was uh, <laughs> interested in the whole situation, and and named an insurer who you always love to have them in a case if you can. I I I I I see that the in recent times that the Bronco has made a comeback now, you know, with Ford, they're, they're selling them again. And uh, they're in their prior incarnations. There were, were some problems that you litigated over, if I yeah, recall. We, 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 uh, and we got involved in some national litigation involving the Bronco too. And it was, uh, it was an unsafe product. And the new iteration uh, contains a lot of good things that we said should have been in the other vehicle. Uh, and and uh, it uh, you know the track width and the suspension and the and the center of gravity and all those things. So uh, I haven't seen a case yet about the new iteration of the Bronco too. But uh, somebody will be out there ready to go. Uh, well, tell 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 us a little bit. You know, I remember uh, when you when you and I met. I think it was through Jimmy Parker, General Practice and Trial Section Board. You know that, and I had a potential uh, crash worthiness case, but. I think my guy had a broken leg, not a broken back, you know, and I, I called you and I talked to you about it and you're like, Lester, that's going to be a lot of expense, you know, you know, for what you're going to get back on a broken leg. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about what's involved in these crashworthiness cases, what you have to prove, how you have to prove it. Because I think a lot of them are, you know, like, like 31 year old Lester Tate was, you know, even though I'd been practicing law for, about five years, just really had no idea about it. Well, first of all, uh, you got to start with what's expected. We have federal motor vehicle safety standards, and that's the minimum a, a vehicle has to have to be sold. But it does not mean that vehicle is safe. That's minimum standard set by the government before you ever sell a vehicle. So a vehicle must uh, must be able to stand reasonable crashes and what goes on inside the vehicle not enhance the injuries that would otherwise have occurred because of the crash itself. So in order to prove that, you must have engineering principles that, that say 
that this vehicle is not performing as it should perform. Brakes, restraint system, roofs. We've done a lot of where car rolls over and the roof crushes. We have roof crush standards and they're inadequate. But, and everybody says, if you meet that roof crush standard, you, 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 you should be clean. That's not true. They don't protect the occupant. So you have to do two things that add to a lot of expense on a crash war in this case. Your case is made by the discovery you can get from the other side. What's discovery? It's the engineering drawings. It's the communications internally between the engineers and the uh, administrators of the company. It's uh, uh, crash test people writing back to the to the engineer saying it didn't work that way out here on the crash pad. Uh, and uh, the second thing is you have to have an expert who is qualified. And we have very stringent, because of our Supreme Court of the United States, stringent requirements before you can put in expert testimony. In Georgia, the old rule was you qualified the guy. He's an engineer. And our statute said once he's qualified, his his testimony shall be heard. So he had a pretty low bar to get over. But now it's got to be really uh, 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 methodology standards in, to get your testimony in. So when you get together with the long delay in your discovery process and you're, you're finding your experts and everybody being deposed, I've just concluded a case that the, uh, that the other side simulated a crash between an 18-wheeler and a pickup truck. They bought those vehicles and simulated the crash three times. That's three times they told me about. How many of you think they actually did? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so there's a lot of expense involved. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a case I had out of I-65 north of Birmingham, uh, my engineer uh, was still, is no Lockheed guy. And we utilized the, uh, the wind tunnel at Lockheed, which is normally used uh, in aviation purposes. And we, we wind tunneled tested the vehicle in there. I had an 18-wheeler pass my clients on a high bridge, never touched them, but the velocity caused them to weave with their articulated trailer, went over that bridge and killed them both. And, uh, and uh, we had to, to face, we never touched the vehicle. And we had to prove that when you go at an excessive rate of speed, it causes the, the wind that affected an articulated vehicle. Uh, also, we, we had a case involving the child baby seat. Well, how do you test that? We hired, we rented the, the, the sled test using the aviation industry out in Wichita Falls. And now I went out there and tested a bunch of baby seats. Now, that stuff costs money. That's why, that's why uh, uh, you have to be aware of what you got down the road. Fortunately, nowadays, we have some history of some tests and some history of experts who have tested and uh and that expense is somewhat abated depending on the case and one thing Pontius lawyers can be proud of we got safer vehicles we've ever had we got safer vehicles than we've ever had and the difference between the industry now safety don't sell that was their that's that was their mantra back in the 70s and 80s nobody cares about safety safety doesn't sell they're all trying to sell safety now the industry fought against airbags. They just didn't want somebody outside the industry telling them what they ought to do with their car. And plaintiff's lawyers have changed that, I think, more than anybody, 
change that whole mentality. No, no, no question about that, Dennis. And I was, I, I think, I, I was going to say when you were talking about your Bronco Two litigation, which, which I kind of thought you were the the face of Bronco Two litigation nationwide. I mean, everyone knew you and Ed Strain handled Bronco had handled all the Bronco Two litigation. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. I, I put the credit on Ed more than me. He really was active. In it. I know both of you. Well, he, he was, and and he was a dear friend also. Um, yeah. And and y'all were certainly a good team. But that's what I think of. And I, when you were talking about your your litigation in that that those cases, you have to feel good about the work you did, not only for the individual clients you're representing at that time, because you're going to get some recovery for them, uh, m- money recovery, but also because the work you put into those cases made those cars safer. For everyone else, you you helped save lives it, uh, it, for other users. We we did, and I want to say that the people across the country that are that are members of uh, uh, the American Association of Justice (AAJ), the old outlaw, we cooperated fully with each other. Nobody wanted anything. I would give everybody any discovery they wanted from me that I could give them, and they did the same thing to me. And that unification of our efforts. Uh, had a lot to do with that, and uh, um, but th- to tell you how things changed, my first Jeep CJ5 case. It's when I talk to my young lawyers about these kind of things, their eyes just roll back in the head, like here comes another one of those stories. But my my first Jeep CJ5 case, there was no internet, there was nobody. We didn't have any of the chat rooms, we didn't have any of the uh, list serves. And I just happened to read that a lawyer in Reno, Nevada, had sued Jeep for a rollover Jeep CJ5. And his name was Peter Chase Newman. And I just called him and said, can I come to Reno and see you? And I flew out there and he gave me everything that he could give me about those CJ5s. And that's the way you had to do it back then. And and I had to sneak in uh, Emory Medical School Library to research medical, uh, get some medical learned articles. And now the Library of Congress is on my desk here. I can, I can yeah. do that without leaving. And, uh, but that's how things have changed. Uh, that, that is amazing. Um, you also, in your career, looks like you've done quite a few uh, jet crashes, airline crashes. Yeah, we've, we've done several of those. And we've got uh, two uh, general aviation cases going now. One of them has settled. You probably see a little something about it pretty soon. Good old John Pope and my son Matt uh, combined on a, on, a, on a, a, a recent plane crash case, and I've got another one going in Hall County. I have fell into that. I'm really not remember, but a, a big case I had was the Valley Jet crash in the Everglades, uh, and I had uh, the professional football player uh, Rodney Culver. I had some wonderful lawyers helping me on that case. I wasn't the only one. They did a lot of the work on it. But they had loaded, and I've used this phrase sometimes, they put hazardous material on the airplane. And, and yet they, 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 they checked that they didn't have any. And, and I, I asked the guy on deposition about what, what or one of us did. I said, well, you didn't check that. He said, no, we pistol whipped, pencil whipped it. I mean, they just took their pencil and checked it. That's check, 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 check. So anyway, and it they, was it was oxygen tanks, right? That exploded in the they crash. Had, they had they put the oxygen tanks on to re, to put, take them back to Atlanta 
to recycle and to be used again. That was the hazmats. And they had rubber tires on there. So when that fire got started, those rubber tires exploded, just filling the thing, blowing it like you you would blow on an ember to get it blowing again. And uh, But one of the interesting things in that case, one of my witnesses was going to be Lou Holtz. And uh, I, I became, for the first time in my life, a Notre Dame fan because very courteous to me, very uh, out, out, the outreach was, was good. So any of these cases, I got these little anecdotes that go along with them that nobody cares about. <laughs> my, my kids roll their eyes when I tell them the young lawyers. But anyway. Well, speaking of your kids, you mentioned that, you mentioned, the Swiss I'm Air sorry, go ahead. The Swiss Air 111 crash that occurred up in Fondy Bay, that was pitiful. There were two sisters going over to meet their uh, their kids who were in a summer Christian academy over in Switzerland, and it crashed up in Fundy Bay because of an uh, error in the uh, the the this wiring system of the controls of the airplane were wired side by side the entertainment uh, part of the plane, and they went together, and it was pitiful. They flew around, dumped their fuel out, got rid of all the fuel they could, and tried to land on the water. They they had no controls. The controls went out. They couldn't could use the flaps or anything. So um, uh, I, I've had some fun with uh, with. Uh, now I haven't done a commercial case in a long time, but we still do. We see aviation aviation cases, and they're almost always pilot error. Although I have made a products case out of one or two of them, so they're sad. Uh, but yeah, but you know, uh, you know, Robin, sometimes. Uh, Necessity is a mother of invention. Sometimes, okay, you might not have done that case before, but you say, well, I'm going to try this because I, uh, it's necessary for me to have a job, a job and have a, a case in my office. So, uh, I've certainly done that. And I thought, well, I've never handled this type of case before. I remember my first Title VII case. Never handled that before, but I can read the statute. I can figure it out. Yeah. That's what I did. And there's always somebody, brother or sister of the bar, that will help you. Always. Yeah, definitely. Especially through Georgia trial lawyers. Yeah. It's been it's been the best organization I've been a member of. I'll tell you that. Uh, Dennis, we were talking about um, some of your airline litigation and and um, and then we, we also wanted to hear a little bit about some of your litigation involving firearms. We, we were talking well, a little I've bit got, about that. Yeah, I've got uh, we've had a few of those and uh, uh what happened uh, on one case that was interesting is um, uh, I had a client in uh, Gwinnett County whose husband, like all husbands do who are deer hunters, abandoned her for the deer camp sometime of started deer season. And uh, mm-hmm. a, she had large sliding glass doors on her patio and a burglar attempted to get in her home. So she ran to the closet to get a pistol out of the closet. It was in a a, a leather holster and getting it out of the uh, holster, it dropped on the floor and uh, it went off and it, it shot her in the femur. She started losing a tremendous amount of blood, was able to get 911 uh, there and saved her life. At last report, the burglar was still running down 75 about Macon because that uh, it was a 44 Magnum when it went off. It, uh, I assume he thought there was a cannon fire coming, but uh, she was able to be saved and, and really restored pretty good help. A foreign-made uh, Italian pistol. and Was it a revolver, or a, a revolver? A revolver. And, 
It's a revolver, and uh, it had fallen on the tile floor and hit on the hammer. And those be, uh, those uh, guns sold in the U.S. are supposed to pass a drop test where you drop them on a hard surface so that it won't force the hammer against the firing pin. Now, most people leave an empty cylinder in a, in a revolver. They hadn't done that, so it went off. And I had to sue the case up in Massachusetts. And I sued the case up in Massachusetts and, uh, and, and got a pretty good verdict. And it kind of reminded me, one of my friends told me this story about him trying a case up in the North. And somebody said, you know, when I try a case down in Atlanta, I come down there, I'm a damn Yankee. Uh, you come up here and try a case, you're Matlock. So uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I hope I benefited a little of that. Uh, 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 and, uh, but we got a, a, a nice verdict, but it was, uh, it, it, it made me very aware of the, the safety issues and gun safety. We've had uh, homeowners cases where uh, guns were improperly used by both adults and, and minors. And you have to go through uh, to make sure you have to check and make sure the, the functioning of the, of the weapon. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a significant, dangerous, inherently dangerous product. So, and you'll be surprised how many people how firearms they have no concept about how to use one uh and um, that's that's one of the problems but this one was unique it was it had failed its test and uh, we managed to get a jurisdiction some way up there and and uh and uh, i think we sued an importer because we had trouble with uh with the the manufacturing sale and david and my david slappy does right now a lot of uh lithium battery cases and of course, all those are made just about all in Asia somewhere, and they're just sometimes really hard to to get the manufacturer. So we do a lot of stuff with against the retailer and the distributor of those batteries. So the, the foreign manufacturer is always a challenge. I think all, that, not so much, but everything else. One of one of the things that folks may not know, and of course, we have a lot of lawyer listeners. We have a lot of non-lawyer listeners, and and we have a lot of lawyers who are not products liability lawyers. Yeah. And uh, the, 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 the test is basically, is there an alternative superior design, which yeah. sort of encourages some sort of uh, safety innovation, I guess. That's uh, right. And, uh, and it's one of the, it's one of the uh, fields where subsequent remedial repairs are admissible. So if you can yeah. show, uh, you know, you can show they did a better job. Uh, that's always helpful. Uh, and, one of the things we've done, um, uh, we had, uh, once again, David uh, brought a case in, and we had a poor, pitiful client that was had taken her car in to be repaired, and they had turned the rotor, rotors on the, on the brakes, and she was going down the interstate and just lost control of her car. And uh, we managed to find out that, uh, that they had left those metal shavings uh, loose in the wheel components, and it caused their ABS brakes to go haywire. And it took really three experts to find out what happened, but this is a very responsible mother of two little children. I think they were four and two when she lost her life. So we had to, uh, you know, you had to go in and try to find out. And we compared it with other vehicles, not only their own subsequent vehicles, but other vehicles of the vintage, and managed to show there's a better way to do it. 
um, we uh, sued the company for um, uh, as well. So uh, their uh, their challenge, and this is one thing. Anytime anybody's hurt with a product, it's, it's kind of a you you got to look at it. And and we've had cases involved with product you wouldn't even think about, like uh, exercise. The you know these uh, uh, bands and stretching things. We have somebody lose an eye. One of those things came loose, and and that became a product case. You think well. You know, who, who would ever think of that? But uh, the, the run the gamut of any product, of course, we all know uh, a big product of which there's a lot of litigation is pharmaceuticals. And uh, uh, that's one of the cases that's pretty interesting. One of my first pharmaceutical cases, a little boy came to me who was almost 20 years old, about 19 years old. And his grandfather and two uncles were lawyers. And they had told him that he had a chance to sue his case up until he was 20 years old. By then, you had an extension. Didn't, the statute didn't start running the majority. So he said, I've always heard that I was deafened by drugs I took when I was an infant. And now, uh, you know, you're solving an 18, 19 year old case. And sure enough, I was able to get his records and I was able to find uh, uh, the drugs he took. And he did take two drugs that could cause ototoxicity, uh, hearing loss. He was never to get two of those drugs together. And I found through going up to the facility up in, I think, Syracuse, New York, and got into their old records. And I found that the year after his drug, they changed their warning label and said, don't use this drug concurrently with these drugs. They had all that information before. They just didn't put it in that. And uh, so uh, we were able to, to to solve that 19-year-old mystery. And a cold case. I'm still in touch with him. He, he came to see me uh, recently. So that's another thing that I'm proud of is a, a lot of my clients, we always wonder, I, mean, I know people wonder, what did they do with that money? And uh, a lot of my clients come in and I stay in touch with them. And I have uh, clients who have maintained their money. The, the wrongful death case, you never know what happens to that money. But people who are injured, that I've seen it, go to good work, go, go take care of people. I've got uh, more than one client whose parents is outfitted in effect a nursing home room in their own home to take care of their loved one and not, not send them to a facility. And to think that they have enough money to do that is heartwarming. It's uh, it's really uplifting to see people take care of the loved one because they were able to achieve enough recovery to do that. And uh, that's one of the things I'm proud of is, is is letting people manage their money and keeping it for the purpose it was intended to help their hurt, hurt, hurt their loved one. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks say, oh, well, when you're suing this, you, you're suing one of these big corporations where they make cars or drugs or whatever they make. Oh, you're just making the price of that go up, and I, I always thought of it as you're really taking out of the taking the profit out of selling, peddling unsafe products is what you're really doing, you know. And we we have that mentality of uh, it will in any insurance case, you know, just a clear liability car wreck case. There, are people say, well, you're running our insurance up for everybody, uh, but what you're really doing, I mean, it's a societal thing. We have a reason for insurance, and we have a reason for compensation uh, and you and i know the compensation people are are able to get is uh 
a poor substitute for the loss they've had. I don't care what it is. Uh, Francis Hare called uh, pain the blood brother of death, and I think he's right. Anytime you got pain, it's a uh, it's a something that should be compensated if there's liability. Dennis, let's talk a little bit. I want to move to a couple other issues. Um, first, I mentioned that you just finished your stint six years on the board of bar examiners. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what that is and what your job was? Sure. Uh, as, as most of us know, in order to pass the bar in Georgia uh, and become a lawyer, you have to go to a law school. You have to stand this bar exam, which is a an onerous uh, two or three day uh, uh, ordeal. And there are we have a board of bar examiners. They are appointed by the Supreme Court. Uh, our dear friend uh, 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 Harris Hines called me one day and asked if I would take this appointment. I saw him a year later and I said, Harris, I thought we were friends. Why, why did <laughs> what did I do to you? What did I do? But it really was a fulfilling experience. It was, um, uh, but what happens is uh, there are six members and we actually grade the test and we for the for four of my years, I actually wrote twice a year for the February and July bar. I wrote a bar exam question and I had to write an answer sheet for what I wanted to see uh, in those questions. Now, a lot of the bar exam is given by the multi-state uh, uh, question, you know, the multi-answered uh, test. Uh, yeah, multi-choice. Multi multi-choice test. And that's a big, that's a big part of it. And, uh, and then uh, we have the MPT, which is a, the test that you, you don't have to know any law. You got to be able to express yourself. They give you the facts, they give you the law, and you're supposed to make a cogent argument or whatever they want you to make it. So the first year on the board, you do an MPT. The middle four, you actually write twice a year and grade uh, the essay questions. All Georgia law, that's what confines us, what makes our bar different. We have a, a, four, uh, a, a big set of essay questions. The last year, you revert back to an MPT. Again, they let you rest a little bit. Uh, our scores over the last six years of my uh, uh, tenure may, remained about the same. Uh, the um, the law schools are uh, vying for their position as number one, uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, we also work in conjunction with the fitness board. There's two parts of the bar examiners. There's the bar exam people that grade papers and write the exam. That's what I was on. There's also a fitness board. If some applicant uh, has some problems. Uh, often now, it's frankly uh, substance abuse, uh, any kind of criminal activity, or any kind of uh, psychological uh, uh, aberrant behavior in the past. We have a fitness board that determines whether this person should even stand for the bar, and uh, and they have to be approved there. Uh, but we go through the process. It takes 270 score to be a lawyer in Georgia. Uh, if you score 265, you get a regrade of your entire test. And so, uh, and by the way, often the regraders do be able to pass on a regrade because we graders look at it and we don't know whether they made a 269 or 265. 
So I always looked at mine like this guy made a 269 or this gal made a 269. So what I do here might affect whether this person becomes a member of the bar. And um, and uh, the Supreme Court has two liaisons uh, that work with our panel and they come to meetings and uh, tell us what they're expected. It's a Supreme Court gig. And uh, uh, and they, we have a bar of a, 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 a administrative group that is terrific. Uh, they're the ones that keep it running like everything. Your, your people who are the full-time employees are the ones that keep it running. But it was a, it was a challenge. It's very time-consuming. But we had a good, cohesive group of examiners, a lot of good folks on it. And uh, it, was a, it was a real job. It made me a pre- – of course, once I passed the bar, I didn't care much about it. Uh, I'd see, <laughs> see my son pass it, but after he passed it, I didn't, and you know, I didn't think much about same, it. Same. I was just praying after I passed it, felt the same way. And then my daughter took it in, in May and passed it. So thank, you know, we're, thank you. Thank you. Right. Your daughter passed in 22. Uh, yes. Well, she, she, she owes it to me. I graded her. Uh, I'll let her know. So tell I'll her, let her know. Yeah, graded she's, her paper. She passed it, and we were all in prayer. And one of the things that and- uh, one of the things that uh, uh, to reassure people, it is it is conducted by it's more security than the CIA. I we have no idea whose paper we're grading. We have no concept of it, and I can't find out if I wanted to. If I tried to, they'd probably replace me as a bar examiner. If you tried to, so it is really it's really a lot of security involved in it. There are some states that are promoting the idea of getting rid of the bar for to become a lawyer. Right. So I think. Do you, do you have an opinion about that? Yeah, I, I think we need a test. I just think we need a test. I, I think, I think, uh, uh, for instance, one of the things now, I think law schools and college in general now, we're going to face a consideration with artificial intelligence. It's happening. So, so I don't know. Uh, uh, there's a move to do away with the LSAT, as you know. And, and uh, uh, so there's a move to change things. And uh, I, I don't think our system is exactly broke. So I don't know that we need a fix right now. I'm, I was always the there's some people that think that Georgia should not have a unique Georgia section of the state bar exam. Uh, I'm an inherent of we need a Georgia section. I just you ought to know Georgia law, I think. You ought to know and Georgia we, law. And, and, and we ought, we know, we're not radically different from anywhere else. We're not radically right. different. I just no, think, we're not. I just think you need that connection that you you infuse yourself with a little uh, Georgia on my mind, you know. You, you I think it it would help. I think it does <laughs> Well, Les, Lester's uh, our ABA delegate, and I know they've uh, – have y'all voted on that issue? I can't remember. Did you vote on uh, that? Not, or? Not, uh, not recently. You know, the, the the other thing that comes up with the ABA is who gets who gets certified and what the what the certifications are, and that's that's been really more of a focus of late because you've got you know you had uh, these for profit law schools getting in there where they're you know if you can get a student loan you can pay the tuition you know welcome in and they're having people that have no shot. At passing the bar right. exam, you know, uh, that that we're getting in. And um, I, I guess my view about the bar exam, you know, uh, I, I, I was never first in anything in my class except becoming a lawyer. 
And, uh, you know, I went to the University of South Carolina. My dad was dying of cancer. So I, I went through in two and a half years and I was wanted to come back to Georgia. I was clerking in Atlanta and I started reading about what I needed to do. And they said, you can take the bar the last time it's offered before you graduate. Well, it was you know, May or June, and I was going to graduate in December. So I thought, well, I'm going to give this thing a whirl, you know. And so, you know, I went and took it. I was working. I worked two jobs that summer. I did not take a review course. I just I got a copy of the books from somebody who had recently passed. So I just studied on my own and went and I passed it. And I always thought if I can pass that thing, and go into an out-of-state law school while I'm working two jobs and not take a review course, I really don't think it's that I well, don't think it's that onerous. Lester, I always admired your intellect and I do even more now. Either you're brilliant or you can cheat better than anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> One of those two things happen. But congratulations, you should be proud of that. Really yeah. Well you should be for sure. Um let's talk a little bit about some of your more recent work with um, representing judges. We mentioned that early on and and just all of a sudden you're in the news quite a bit. Um, you've been representing a, a, a judge uh, from the Georgia Court of Appeals, Judge Christian Coomer. And it, that is a case of some notoriety. You have to admit there's a, a general interest in what how that's happened and, and the prosecution of him by the JQC. I don't know if prosecution is the right word. That might be a little strong, but um, I don't think it's you, too strong. Do you, Lester? Okay. Well, no, I don't. Okay. So, um, so some of our listeners may not be familiar with that, but but with the JQC and what they do. But you have kind of found a, a new niche here in in your career, where you're representing quite a few judges before the JQC, uh, and it's where the JQC is really coming after the judges and trying to get them removed from the bench. Is that right? Well, uh, I will say that they are judges who they think has violated the code of judicial conduct. And and the people at the JQC think they have, and they are working through the process. Uh, Judge Coomer's case is still pending. I'm very reluctant to say anything about that case, uh, as you would understand. Uh, sure. And I, 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 it's in a very delicate position right now. And uh, uh, it has been remanded from the Supreme Court to the JQC hearing panel for additional findings uh, or modification of their findings. And uh, we do not know anything other than that. I'm not sure when the ske- briefing schedule will be. Uh, but the case is significant for two reasons. Uh, one, it's the first appellate judge that I know of who has been accused of misconduct in a formal charge. Uh, and it's also. Uh, uh, the case of first impression to really hear whether or not conduct before somebody goes on the bench is controlled uh, or, or the JQC has jurisdiction over that. And um, uh, and in what circumstances that they might have jurisdiction when somebody does something before they become a judge. So Lester's got the same issue, don't you, Lester? Absolutely. And, 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 you know, um, uh, as you know, I, I served on and chaired the JQC in a sort of prior incarnation, and uh, I don't know that we ever thought we had jurisdiction then over this prejudicial conduct. Uh, and you have to be careful to put that hyphen in there because it's 
prejudicial means before you went on the bench, not prejudicial. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because otherwise it's it's spelled the same way. But uh, I, one of the things that I found interesting, and I, I certainly, by the way, too, and want to be totally respectful about about the Coomer case. I, d- I do want to ask you about one of the sort of principles of law, you know, that was involved in that because you got a very favorable decision uh, from the from the Georgia Supreme Court recently, and uh, a- 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 with prejudicial conduct, I used to call it in the newspaper. I called it cradle to grave supervision over anybody that thought about being a judge, you know, because under their idea, you know, if you got expelled from uh, 11th grade for drinking, for underage drinking, you know, it it could affect your fitness as a judge later on, you know, in theory. And so uh, one of the things that I found interesting about that is that when the Georgia JQC asserted that jurisdiction, they repeatedly cited in my case, and I think in yours, uh, this Florida JQC opinion, which uh, gave the Florida Judicial Qualifications Commission pre-judicial jurisdiction. And if you went back and looked at that, what happened in Florida is the Florida Supreme Court had originally said, no, they don't have it. And then there was a constitutional amendment. And then they did have it uh, after that. But with Georgia, there was no constitutional amendment. You and I both, in separate cases, kept sort of hammering that. I know that I had three times, you know, sort of asked the court uh, in, in where they tried to file interim suspensions against my client I, in two of those instances, had raised that issue, never got a ruling on it. And then you and I both filed uh, writs of mandamus, original jurisdiction writs of mandamus to the Supreme Court. We didn't get an answer. So we finally, we did get an answer now. And it seems like it's uh it's a it's a hard no uh, uh, from, from that that anything you did prior to at least becoming a judicial candidate uh, is not grounds to remove you from 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 the bench or to discipline you. Do you agree with that? Uh, to an extent, uh, there are some conducts before the bench that I think they're going to say uh, rises to the level of of of. Uh, Criminality, maybe. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, we don't have to go back, but look at uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Look at that. He was a 17 year old senior in high school, wasn't he? And uh, now, of course, different setting. It's a different thing, but there's got to be a limit on how far back you can go or at least on what kind of conduct you go back to. What kind of conduct is it? Um, And uh, well, Apparently, everybody who's up there, everybody who's a judge, that's a lawyer judge, uh, has to answer to the bar, not just the JQC. Uh, Now, my latest one of my latest judges up there, he was a non-lawyer judge. So I I didn't have the the bar can be a great sword for you as well as shield. And my my man was not a member of the bar. And uh, uh, so uh, and his conduct was not. Pre, pre-judicial, nor was it while he was on the bench, it was conduct in his personal home at, in the evening with a dispute with his wife. And uh, uh, so that case, uh, I, I found an exception in that case. 
even though he retired from the bench during the process. And so there's a reason I was able to file something. And, uh, uh, yeah, and, and you know, the, the, uh, every, every you, you talked earlier about the, the, the deaf, uh, guy that you represented and the statute of limitation had not run because he was a minor. Right. You know, but even though that was that's a that's a wild exception to go back 19 years, it is you know, or something like that. But every uh, area of law that we deal with today, whether it be uh, you know criminal, civil, products liability, tort, you know whatever you want to go into, there's a there's a limitation on how long you can wait before you assert right. right. Correct. Even even my even my 19 year which you couldn't do that in 2023. Yes. yes. But even that one had a limitation. It was two years after you attained the age of majority. So it was limited. Uh, yes. And, and, and so, that, that was before we had a statute of repose for torture yes. and a statute of repose for malpractice. So right. we have statutes of repose now, which we are we are a time bound profession. Everything we've got is time, and it means something. It was it, it, it you know, and it was interesting to me. Like yesterday on the uh, where former President Trump is challenging a ruling on attorney client privilege, the the D.C. Circuit actually issued a ruling that said that instructed Trump's lawyers. You file uh, before midnight, I think it was, and we want the government to file by 6 a.m. the next morning, you know, so <laughs> uh, which I thought was a little little rough. But to the time thing, and particularly when you're talking about people who are lawyers and things that they did or are just really just accused of doing while they're lawyers, there's a there's a, a five year statute, I believe, on I think I'm right about that five years on bar misconduct. And so what the argument is on the other side of that is, oh, you can't be accused of bar misconduct if unless there's already been a complaint filed. There's sometimes there are situations where that's happening, but uh, we can we can use that same conduct that they time barred in another type of case to to remove you from the bench. Yeah. Um well, uh, I think what what the good intentions of the new iteration of the JQC, where they separated the hearing panel from the investigative panel, there was there was a laudable reason for that, uh, because you didn't want to, one hat to be worn by the investigator, the prosecutor, and the judge and the jury. Uh, so that's divided now, uh, and I think what. It, in this evolution of the new iteration, I think we are going to slowly evolve into a set of rules that are, are that that we some more rules that we haven't seen before. I think we're going to have some modifications to the rules, um, and maybe a lot of it will be will be solved. But uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's it's a it's a tough. We all want a clean bench. Everybody wants a clean bench. So we all are got the same aim, but sometimes I fear that that we may be letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, no, no judge is perfect, and I think we we probably have a capacity to make some kind of rehabilitation conditions 
available at the IP level, at the investigative panel level that don't, don't seem to be there now. Yeah, I think, uh, and I was going to ask you what you thought about this. So when I was on the commission, chaired the commission, we were one panel, you know, yeah. we were one panel. And, and you know, there are a lot of people that said, well, that's not due process because we were judge, jury, you know, uh, yeah. the, the, the whole thing. On the other hand, when you're talking about public employment, it wasn't that different from a school board can fire the superintendent or a principal, you know, or whatever, or the city council can fire the police chief, you know. So, I mean, there was there was some for it. And so I, th- I agree with you. I think there's some things that, uh, you know, we're, we're getting to that, that provide a little more due process. I wonder if you think that, so when I was doing that, if we found that there was misconduct, we had we knew we had to hold the trial and all these people are volunteers, you know, just like you were a volunteer bar examiner, yeah. you know. And so, uh, you know, I think there was more incentive to work something out at the IP, you know, at the charging level, because you knew otherwise you were going to have to go sit in a trial and, you know, you were going to. Uh, have that. So now what the investigative panel can do is say, oh, yeah, there's a charge. We're done. Hearing panel, you have you have you have handled and it. And it, uh, it's almost analogous to maybe they think they're like a grand jury, uh, just kind of yeah. any evidence, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich. Let's, right. let's vote out the formal charges and, and that's done. I, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that exists. I've heard that expressed. Uh, that uh, that uh, we need some more uh, uh, measured approach at the IP, uh, maybe some uh, actual uh, uh, ability to have a little more of a hearing, more more of a give and take there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that that's the answer. Uh, I know that. Uh, uh, there was a significant movement to separate the investigation and uh, and the uh, prosecution from the hearing panel. And they, they've got ex parte conduct contact rules in there. They've tried to separate them. And um, but if uh, I know what you're talking about, if you if you have uh, the ability to wind the whole thing up under one, and you still do. The IP can still reach a, an agreement by agreement with a judge, uh, and uh, I, I don't know how that that hadn't been accomplished much by me, but uh, I think that uh, that's that's can be done. Yeah, and and when I say that the investigative panel just passes it on and it's off their plate, I'm not really accusing anybody of not doing their job there. I'm saying that's just sort of your, that's just sort of your. Uh, I, I think you'd be more than a mere mortal if you didn't think, okay, well, I'm I'm done with this. Somebody else is going to have to deal with it, and and, and well, there is no overriding. Uh, there is no overriding. Uh, uh, person that's looking at all of it uh, until you get to the Supreme Court. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I know that um, I'm like you. I think the IP is a sincere group of people trying to do the best it can with us, all of us that desired thing to have a clean bench. We, right. we want honest men and women on the bench. We want competent men and women on the bench. We want uh, a consistent men and women on the bench. We want people who show up to work on the bench. 
And because, look, nothing really is any more revered than the position of judge. Exactly. It, it, it really, and it should be. And so because of that reverence that, that our profession certainly holds for it and, and the uh, population in general, it, it should be uh, a high, it, it, it's a high demand for conduct. Uh, by the same token, it's not a high demand for perfection. And uh, I think most of us want to concentrate on what that man or woman does in that role on the bench. What are they doing as a judge? Uh, and are they honest and fair and competent? Uh, well, and you also want, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting here talking to probably the two best lawyers I know. And, uh, and, and I don't recall either of you ever putting in for a judgeship, you know, at any point in time, uh, maybe y'all did. And I, I don't know about it, but, uh, but the bottom line is, you know, it's, it's not a job that everybody wants that's really well qualified for it either. And so we've got some great folks that are, are doing that. And, you know, they, I think need some protection, uh, against, uh, one one of the things that that uh, nobody seems to be interested in, our judges are grossly underpaid. Yep, I mean grossly underpaid, and uh, uh, I don't see any real organization and movement. Our bar should be the leaders in lobbying everybody they see to increase judicial pay, and it's a it's a catch as catch can. It's no organization to it. You've got. You got judges uh, at the trial level making way more than our appellate judges do. I understand that. Is that right with their supplements and things? True. It depends on what county they're in, but if they have a county that gives them a certain supplement, they do make more. So huge. And, and uh, it, it's just that we need to have some uniformity and some uh, really realistic pay scale uh, uh, about our judiciary, uh, and it would attract Robin Clark to put in maybe if. Uh, they raise it to a few million dollars a year. <laughs> well, you know, we had, I remember in one prior incarnation uh, of a, of a pay raise when we did go down there and many of us in the bar and bar leadership were encouraged to, you know, write legislators and uh, 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 wrote one local legislator who's gone now. This has been over 20 years ago. And he wrote back and said he was against it because, and I, I'm quoting him here, I've known of no shortage of applicants for this for this position. Well, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I doubt there'd be a shortage of applicants for uh, serving in the legislature, uh, you know, either. But that doesn't mean that everybody applies is the one that, that you know, ought to get it or is the best that you could get. So you would really want a... Uh, a, an excess of applicants for something that that that's that important, and I think that you you know you're right. spot on with that about the pay is one of the reasons that people right. don't do it, and a lot of right. people are leaving the bench because they say I got kids to put through college, and I, I, I talked to I, I talked to I talked to two judges yesterday that said I don't know how much longer I can go. These are these are uh, uh, people in their in their probably early forties, mid mid. 40s to early 50s, and if they're going to get any money made for the family, they're to the point of they they're point of no return. They, they've kind of got to go, and it's a shame to to hear a really great jurist say that, but it's realistic. And uh, um, but I believe wholeheartedly in the basic goodness of people, 
And, and I believe in the goodness of the investigative panel, and I believe in the goodness of the hearing panel, and I believe in the goodness of most of these judges who serve at a great sacrifice and, uh, and uh, uh, put themselves out there. And it's, uh, it's uh, I think we'll see some modifications of the judicial uh, disciplinary process in the future. It's going to be evolving. Uh, but uh, uh, the rules are written, as Lester knows, they're broad enough that they were that interpretation is wide as the ocean, how they're interpreted. Dennis, so let me um, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say when you when you have uh, when one of your one of your rules is you have to always avoid the appearance of impropriety. Uh, I mean, you know, that 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 can mean you can't put a put a hundred dollar bill in the in the offering plate at church because it might look like you're taking a hundred dollars out. I mean, you know, there's no real uh, uh, there, there, there's no real guidance like you get in criminal law or other right. places. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and so is appearance. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is the appearance of impropriety? And you can, and, and the, the, one of the issues is the hearing panel gets to find the facts of what's imp what appears to be improper. Mm -hmm. we, we've taken a lot of your time this afternoon. There were a couple of other questions I wanted to move on to, um, but my, my penultimate question uh, is, what would you say to a young lawyer just starting out using your 52 years in practice of wisdom and experience? What would you tell a young lawyer just starting out? What advice would you give that person? Talk to a lawyer that you and your judges admire. You talk to any judge that will give you your ear. And you tell that judge, judge, who should I go talk to about the practice of law? Who should I see? And judge, can you help me? Can you give me some some information? You talk to people, and some of those people would say you need to join your your legal groups. If you're a member of a defense bar, you need to join the Defense Lawyers Institute. If you're a criminal lawyer, you need to join GAC. If you want to do general trial trial work, you need to get an active in state bar general trial section. If you want to be a plaintiff's lawyer without any waiting join uh, uh, the Georgia trial lawyers. Network, open your eyes, never quit reading, never quit learning, and learn from people who have gone before you. And don't try to imitate people. You can't imitate anybody, but you can imitate the goodness, the, the, the nature you can, you can learn from the qualities that people give and the character and get away from that. Uh, keyboard and call people and visit them and talk to them and get personal with these people you want to talk to. If you want to find out from Lester Tate uh, how to practice law and how to be successful, don't send him an email. Call him and say, can I come to Carterville and talk to you? That's how you do it. Lester, what do you think? You, you've you been such totally, a mentor. Totally agree people. with that. I mean, people like you, uh, Jimmy Parker, Buddy yes. Darden, uh, maybe most of all, because I've just known him longer, Bobby Lee Cook, all these people are people I was able to go talk to. You know, what do you, what do you think I should do about this? And, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've, I've always gotten good advice. And 
the other thing is if you're choosing the right people uh, that, that are giving you good advice, you're going to know it because you usually get pretty consistent advice from all yeah. those folks. Well, and, uh, you know, the uh, 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 you just got to be open to consider everything you hear. And we know what's right and wrong. We know the right thing to do. You may try to fool yourself about it, but you know when when you're not when the right thing's not being done. It's pretty easy, uh, but sometimes we have those conundrums. Well, should I do this or do this? There ain't no real answer here. What do I do? Then you seek the counsel of people you care about and and you, who you admire, and they're out there. We got I, you know we get criticized, but are y'all like me? Best folks I've ever met are lawyers. Yeah, the people we, we turn to we in are, our community, we love lawyers <laughs> and people we turn to in the community for anything in the community that needs to be done. You start with the bar members. I don't care what kind of charitable thing it is, whether it's a church or a school. The bar members are the people that lead that. That's what we've always had. I don't know if the younger generation is coming along with that. I don't know that. I know the older ones did. Well, one of my one of my standard piece advices to younger lawyers is, you know, I don't try cases on uh, by email or on the telephone, <laughs> you know, because now I get a lot of younger lawyers that want to just tell me how horrible, but they're, they're very proud of their case and they're real, uh, you know, my, they think mine's horrible. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that's just not a very, you know, nobody ever won the case on the telephone. Well, you know, you, uh, you've gotten rich and helped a lot of clients because of that. So <laughs> you've gotten a lot of good results for your clients because of the lawyer's mentality like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we're we're a bunch of love lawyer lovers. We I'm very proud to be a lawyer. It's certainly been good to me in my career. Um, at, I, I was going to tell you at my at my dad's funeral. He died last last fall, but I spoke at his funeral. And my dad was a feminist way before his time, but he had one rule for me, and that was I had to be independent. He didn't care what I did in life. What what job I had, but I had to be able to support myself because he had seen too many women not do that. And then, you know, they don't have a life and uh, can't get out from under a bad situation. He said, I don't care what you do. you got to be independent. You, you, you have to support yourself. But he was a pharmacist and he always encouraged me to go into law because he thought if you had a law license, once you got your law license, nobody could take that away from you. You could always put it outside and hang up a shingle and be open for business and make a living. And to God, God loving, to his credit, he was absolutely right. Um, I, was always, I was always astonished that at my age, when I started, somebody would actually come in and hire me and pay me a fee. <laughs> I was just blown away by that. I, I thought it was great. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Dennis, our our last question that we always ask every guest on our podcast uh, is, how do you define justice? Or what does justice mean to you? Justice is righteousness and the right thing. There's so many components to it. And, you know, in Deuteronomy, it said, uh, justice tempered with mercy I think mercy is a component of justice. I think it's in there. That's it. That, that is, I think the mercy part of it, but justice 
is the right thing to do for all parties considering the circumstances. That's justice. And to me, and I think we all ought to strive for that. And, uh, and we do, I think we do now. Uh, um, your idea of what's justice in a case is not often the same idea of the opponents and, uh, in the adversarial proceeding that's going to happen. But what we must do is accept what we think due process gave us. And if we had our due process and if we had our day and we had our say and whatever results, more overwhelmingly than not, that's justice. It's justice. Been a few mistakes. Churchill said it. Worst, worst situation, in the worst uh, process in the world, except for all other processes. Uh, but that's my idea of justice. And uh, we sense it and we see it. And we've all seen injustices. And sometimes injustices occur, even though everything has seemed to be correctly done. And uh, But that's rare. Lester, uh, now's the time in our program where we love to talk about something in the news, law-related, and we we don't usually consult each other before we pick our item, and right. we didn't today, and it turns out we chose the same item, which I think means it must be pretty a pretty interesting event going on in the, the law-related world. Why don't you tell our listeners about this case? Yeah, Robin, I don't know that uh, I don't know that it means that it's such an interesting event. I think it's just that you and I always think about bourbon first, you know, <laughs> and that's so. what it because it's a it's a it's a, it's it's a bourbon story, you know, and yeah. uh, I have the NPR version of that that came out at 5 a.m. this morning, and it's about uh, Jack Daniels is arguing with a dog toy manufacturer before the United States Supreme Court today. As you know, Jack Daniels uh, it, it makes an iconic uh, uh, whiskey and an iconic uh, liquor bottle, and it values its trademark. Uh, and they're trying to stop production of a chewy dog toy called Bad Spaniels. Jack Daniels, Bad Spaniels. The toy shaped <laughs> and decorated like a Jack Daniels bottle features a spaniel and the name Bad Spaniels on the label instead of Jack Daniels. Instead of promising 40% alcohol by volume, it promises 43% poo by volume, 100% <laughs> smelling. The vinyl bottle is part of a line of chewy dog, a chewy dog toys called Silly Squeakers, which parodies other famous brands and is manufactured by VIP Products, the country's second largest dog toy uh, manufacturer. So uh, today they are going to, I guess they've already had by this time, uh, a full round of discussion of bourbon and dog toys in the country's highest court. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of uh, of what the arguments were, because the briefs have been filed, uh, you know, uh, Jack Daniels argues in its brief, Jack Daniels loves dogs and appreciates a good joke as much as anyone. But Jack Daniels likes its customers even more and doesn't want them confused or associating its fine whiskey with dog poop. Uh, 
And then the brief comes back that Jack Daniels misses the point when it equates Bad Spaniel's toy with knockoffs like marijuana-laced Oreos marketed as Stonios, says the dog toy lawyer, Bennett Evan, Evan Cooper. So I just think this is uh, uh, sort of funny in one way. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to confuse uh, Jack Daniels with uh, – with uh, 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 dog poo. And by the way, the dog toy manufacturer, I think one below. Uh, and I, I think I think it's kind of silly that the United States Supreme Court would take this case up when they only take 40 cases a year. And really, this is this is the th- this is one of the pressing issues that we have. Uh, so anyway, I thought it was also funny that you and I picked the same one. So our yeah. listeners are only going to get one story, but two viewpoints. So speak now to the masses about your views on Jack Daniels Mm. dog toys that claim it's dog poo, Robin. Yeah. Well, my, my first, my first response is that I'm not sure I consider Jack Daniels bourbon, but that's, that's probably a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. Um, but it is not it reminds, aged in in new oak barrels. It goes through a charcoal filtering process. Right. I don't know what the mash bill is, but you know it has to have a certain mash bill, which we learned from our friend Brian Hara, who we had on as a guest a while yeah. ago. And and this story reminded me of his talk he gave uh, in our in our podcast episode and also down at our Cibota meeting. Um, about trademark and and bourbon justice, his book Bourbon Justice, and about how whiskey law shaped America, um, and that these folks really protect their trademarks pre- pretty fiercely. Um, the the Lanham Act trademark act test is would would a consumer be confused? And I agree with you, a consumer would not be confused in any shape or form, um, but. What the toy manufacturer has argued is that it's humorous. It's it's all a joke, a parody, and that takes it away from even a, a Lanham Act analysis. Um, and so apparently a number of big manufacturers wrote amicus briefs uh, like Nike, um, National Manufacturers Association wrote an amicus, um, several big groups chimed in on this uh, because they want to protect their trademark as well. Um, The owner of the dog toy company says, look, you can't be so serious in in this world all the time. You need to be able to sit back and laugh at yourself. And that's kind of the way I see that. It's it's kind of funny. It's a parody. No one's going to get that dog toy confused with a real bottle of Jack Daniels. And I'm with you, Lester. I can't believe in a in a in a pivotal moment with the United States Supreme Court, where we're talking about questions of human rights, abortion, gun rights, firearm protection, that they took this up. I, I'm really I'm I'm shocked. Um, but if our listeners want to go back and listen to the oral arguments that occurred in the Supreme Court this morning, you can see them. You can go to supremecourt.gov. And they're right there. You can click on and listen to the to the arguments. I did not do that this morning. I had something else going on. I know you were in court this morning, Lester. Um, and, and, but I may go back and listen. 
And if our listeners want to listen to something a little more relaxing than Supreme Court arguments and might have a bottle of Jack Daniels, which would show proofs positive that they had not confused it with a dog toy, they can look at the link in my NPR article, which have YouTube links to country music songs, which make reference to Jack Daniels. You can hear the lovely Miranda Lambert. Uh, who in her song, uh, Jack Daniels, called it the best kind of lover that there is. Or David Allen Coe, who in Jack Daniels, if you please, said it was the only friend there has ever been that didn't do me wrong. (laughs) I doubt that the dog toy company (laughs) would agree with David Allen Coe's sentiments, but uh, they'll be there for the listening if the Supreme Court arguments get too boring. Yeah, and something else our listeners can do is go back and listen to our episode with Brian Hara and yes. Urban Justice, and that it, it explains a lot about this sort of trademark law uh, regarding whiskey and, and, and probably, in fairness, why they took the case. You know, it it it, it may have some wider uh, implications than uh, than than we currently give it credit for. Right. So interesting case. We'll be looking for that opinion uh, fairly soon. Um, and we may even have a cheers to a, a drink of bourbon to celebrate it. Yep, absolutely. That's all I have, Lester. Got nothing, got nothing more uh, from, okay. from this end. Great day. So I Great guess guess. next time we'll see you next time when we see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court. Brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.